Hello world. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I forgot not to say hello. <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer Carolina Gropa. It's been a while. Uh, it's been a minute actually. <laughs> About a month. Gosh, it feels crazy. The time is flying by. Does anybody else feel it? I admittedly have not been able to put out episodes during this time. I've felt a bit unmotivated, uninspired, and to be honest, just didn't feel like putting out episodes that were going to be mediocre. I really wanted to take this time to sort of take a pause, just take a minute to realign with myself. So thank you for your patience. If you don't already subscribe to the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, give us a five-star review. Anything you can do to spread the word and increase the visibility of the show is tremendous. I've loved hearing how the show has impacted and empowered and inspired everyone so far. It's really why I do this. In the face of uncertainty, it's important to take your time. I have struggled to do the same, to practice what I preach, <laughs> but here we are. I'm hoping to get back on the horse and continue to bring you guys consistent episodes on a weekly basis. So this week on the show, I'm so excited. I got to sit and talk to Stacy Feinberg, who is an investor and a producer on Jagged Little Pill on Broadway. She sunk her teeth into business while assisting her father at his pioneering sports and entertainment law firm, Bob Wolf & Associates. Beyond negotiating contracts, they also managed every aspect of the lives and careers of over 300 clients, including Larry Bird, Larry King, Joe Montana, and New Kids on the Block. In the late 90s, she co-founded a hedge fund and a decade later pivoted to pre-IPO investing. She was an early investor in some startup companies you may have heard of that include Facebook, Zico Water, Alibaba, and Michael Kors. All of that is extremely impressive and makes my head spin. But what I love most about Stacy is that after making enough money, she shifted her focus to funding and empowering female entrepreneurs. As she likes to say, women don't need a hand out, they need a hand up. During our hour together, Stacy shines a light on how she's been able to empower women, why it's so important to her, and the advice she gives to budding investors who want to support female artists. So let's dig in and hear from Stacy. So thank you. I left so your Mary much. Howard, by the way. That was a great one. Did you? Oh, thank yeah. you for yeah, she's uh, such a, a light, that woman. She's I'm jealous great. that you got to do it at her house. Like that, but I'll just yeah. have to have you back. That's all. I know. I definitely want to come and see and see your house, come visit you, meet you in person. Obviously, that this is uh interesting times for all of us. And so thank you for taking the time to to sit and talk to me because I can imagine um not everybody may be in the headspace or the spirit to sit and, and chat about <laughs> some of this stuff. So I'm very grateful to you. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about you. Give me some context and backstory to the listeners, who you are and how you got to be in this, this here moment in time. Yeah. So life is not a straight road, as most of us know. There's a <laughs> lot of zigging and a lot of zagging that goes on and things that you know, opportunities arise that you never expect. But I always say that be willing to take a chance, be willing to pivot, be willing to try something different. I call it collecting breadcrumbs because you just don't even know where down the road you're going to say, oh, wow, that was something that was important. And now I'm supposed to zig instead of zag. Now I'm supposed to take a left instead of a right. So people have to be a lot more cognizant of the fact that you're probably going to have a dozen different careers in your life. If you have one career, because let's say you've wanted to be a veterinarian since you're nine years old, wonderful. 
But for a lot of us, we shouldn't be afraid of trying lots of things. And when you're young, your opportunity costs are at an all-time low, and that's the best time to try things. I worked on a 18th century British frigate uh, salvage operation in Lewis, <laughs> Delaware. I took off from Northwestern. Nobody in my house was happy about that, but I was helping uh, do public relations for a salvage operation. And uh, at 20 years old, I got us on the cover of the Sunday New York Times, and we all flew up and did the Today Show. Um, Where do you get this fire? Where does that come from? So my dad started the field of sports law. He was the first agent, if you will, though he was a lawyer. And so he liked to say he was a sports attorney, which he was. And so we, he created the field of sports law, sports marketing, and I was uh, his right hand man, if you will. Working for a parent is very challenging. I, I quit once a month. I <laughs> cried once a week, but he made me really, really good because he would ask me 20 questions. And then the 21st was the one I couldn't answer. Mm. It was like, gotcha. And then I'd cry. But then I'd realize next time I'd have the answer for 21 and it would be 22 where he got me. But he made me really good. So um, I learned, that's how you learn about, um, there are no stupid questions and you learn about <laughs> diligence. So anyways, I worked for my father. I was um, representing professional athletes. I was creating the field of sports marketing. That turned into a job with the uh, salvage operation was a mm. pivot. I came back and graduated, but I got a professor at Northwestern to make this uh, an internship while I lived in Lewis, Delaware by myself for six months at the age of 20. And it was great. And it's what makes me who I am now. And then later I got into finance because I fell in love with a young man who wanted to be in finance. And in my family, that was like marrying a casino operator. Like if you're going <laughs> to marry a gambler. <laughs> well, but he's kind of the house, you know, and they weren't thrilled about that. But then, you know, after Harvard Business School and um, I worked while he went to Harvard Business School. Right. And I said to myself, I'll be back. And I sat in on lots of uh, as many classes as I could. I audited as many classes as I could, which was great. And participated as much as I could while I worked three jobs to help pay for business school. And I have gone back to Harvard Business School, I'm proud to say. Pause that. Yeah. In this time of your life where you're working three jobs and you're doing all of this, how, how did you manage all of that? How did you juggle all of these balls? Um, I like to have lots of plates spinning. I, that, I'm the kind of person I am. I'm one of those weird people that likes to-do lists. I get great satisfaction literally still with a pen, you know, yeah. checking off my list. Sometimes you, I think that I add things just to get you that. You come to the right feeling. place. Yeah, it's yeah. my girl. We're kindred spirits. So yeah, sometimes I'll even like, you know, I know I'm guilty of doing that just to get that, that's a rush of getting something accomplished. Yeah. But um, I like diversity. I like doing different things. I'm not afraid to take risks. I think that you should always roll the dice and I've moved Many times I move every seven years. I just do. I'm, I'm ready for another move. Um, I find it exciting. So got into finance and uh, ultimately helped my um, husband at the time choose to be on the buy side instead of the sell side based on his, what he was talented at. And he worked at um, Fidelity as the assistant on the Magellan Fund. Mm when it was the Magellan Fund. Wow. Peter Lynch was there and then Jeff Finnick. And so um, I was still working in the sports and entertainment field, but I was learning finance. I was fascinated and I would listen in on meetings and I started reading Barron's and I started reading Business Suite and I learned the industry. So that was, um, that was mutual funds. Then uh, we segued into hedge funds and um, 
he actually worked at Soros and was the youngest partner at Soros. Mm-hmm. And I was still running the literary division and sports and entertainment divisions. But again, always fascinated by the financial markets. Yeah. Then he, um, we decided that it was best to open our own hedge fund. And that's when I could actually become an active analyst. And um, so we had a hedge fund in the, the best of times when little ladies in Ohio were making a fortune <laughs> I mean, on stocks. <laughs> it was the 90s, the roaring 90s. And yeah. there weren't many of us, actually, which was kind of fun. You know, you'd go to a conference, there'd be 150 people. Those same conferences now have you know 10,000 people. It's wow. certainly not the same. Um, we made a lot of money. Um, I'm not a stuff person. I told you I'm an experiential person. Um, the things that matter to me, and I feel that money is just merely the opportunity to say and instead of or. So I can take a vacation and I can pay my car lease. I can do this and. That's really what it's always meant to me. But more importantly, what, how could I use this money and all this good fortune to make a difference? Um, the, my husband at the time did not feel that way. He said, we're creating value. We're creating jobs. Um, be happy, be grateful. Mm. Uh, but I knew someday I was going to be able to pivot and utilize that good fortune for things that I felt really mattered. And also grassroots because we were dealing with public equities. Yeah. Uh, stocks are, there's, you have nothing to do with them. You buy it in the morning, you could sell it in the evening. There's, you didn't create anything. You're just buying and selling. It's literally yeah. a computer transaction. Mm. Fast forward. Um, I started doing a little private equity because I was always fascinated by it. I invested early in a company called Zico Water Mm. um, that was brought to me by a great entrepreneur. And we ended up selling it to Coke for four times. I invested in uh, Michael Kors before he went public. Um, I bought FaceTime, uh, excuse me, um, (laughs) Facebook um, very early, very early on. So I was dabbling a little bit there. And it wasn't until we got divorced and uh, separated our assets that I said, oh my God, now, I, now I'm now i holding the wheel. <laughs> and it, it was frightening, um, but I did it. And uh, quickly taught myself, you know, had to teach myself a number of things that I didn't already know. And the first thing I did because I was very comfortable in the philanthropy world was doing microfinance loans, micro, micro loans to women. What am I talking about? $1,000, a woman buys two vacuums and a bunch of cleaning supplies, and she now has a cleaning company. Mm-hmm. $600, and she buys two sewing machines, um, and she has a tailoring business. I had a 99% repayment rate. Wow. Who wouldn't want that? What bank wouldn't like that? Yeah. These are all women. I never told them it was a 501c3. I wanted them to take this seriously. And as they repaid the loans, I was able to make further loans. Yeah. And uh, I was um, then inspired to do this for profit. So I thought, how do I, how do I do that? And I learned angel investing. I had no idea what that was. Yeah. And where does that term come from, angel investing? Because Why you angel? are literally an angel. I sometimes think it comes from Broadway. Have you heard the term hmm. like a Broadway angel? Because they're like sent from heaven. They make things possible because you know that they're probably not going to get their money back. Yeah. So it's like, you know mana from heaven. So they're like right. angel. Mm-hmm. And um, when you come in at the angel level, mm-hmm. you're betting on a person and a product and a hope and a prayer. There's really no traction. You're lucky if there's an MVP, a, a minimum viable product. You're lucky there probably is no revenue. So you are truly 
an angel, angel sent because your funds are that early. Yeah. Then of course it goes seed money and series A and series B and venture capital. And I taught myself all these different things and um, it was fascinating. I loved learning all these things, but what I really decided was I wanted to focus on women and minorities because one of the things that was scourging is only 4% of women were getting funded. Mm. 4%. That's Men really could raise money with, you know, an idea and, uh, you know, a, a beer at the bar with some <laughs> Silicon Valley bros. Yep. But women could have these great products and couldn't get a, a phone call. Right. And uh, so that's why I decided to focus on female entrepreneurship. And, that, and thus you have. Now, how long have you, since you've made the switch, been focused in female entrepreneurs and all the different ways you've, you've helped give women opportunities? Thank you. Well... I'm women-centric, love men, and I do invest in men. Um, in fact, most of my cannabis companies are f- founded by men, though I do have a few oh, cool. uh, female-founded <laughs> cannabis companies. Um, but um, I have about 24 companies in my portfolio now. My checks range from as uh, small as 25000 to about 250000 So that depends on a lot of different parameters. Um, and... Uh, it's not just companies. I've invested I, I, in a in a play that I'm so proud of. I'm a producer. Yes, on Jagged Little, Little Pill. Pill. Yes, yes. I I did a restaurant, and I, as long as a woman is one of the top three positions, as long as a female or minority or a female minority um, is one of the people who are founding it, then I'm fascinated by it, and I want to give them my support and help them bring further support. So. What is it about a project or a woman? I mean, aside from the financials, right? Since you are really investing in the person, investing in the story and who they are and the lens that they bring to whatever they're doing, you're still taking a financial risk and you know that there's a potential you don't get your money back. So from an emotional standpoint, what is it that drives you to take these gambles on these certain kinds of people? Like, is there a commonality that you, you could point to sort of between all of them, no matter what industry they're in, that really pulls you in? Um, well, the most important thing for me, and, I, and I, know, I know that eight out of the 10 investments will go broke and I won't get my money back. Yeah. I know that one of them, I'll get my money back. And to me, that's a win. <laughs> but I also know one of them will be a 10X or a 20X and that will subsidize all the rest. Yep. And this is not new. This is the same as the literary industry, the entertainment industry, uh, Broadway. It, it's ironic how it really extends uh, to all of those different industries. Yeah. But my thesis remains such that it needs to be something that I'm proud of. It needs to be something. It has to have some element where if I actually put on my philanthropic hat, I look at it and I say to myself, is my check going to make a difference in the world if this company actually succeeds, if this product is out there, if this is made a possibility. Um, I, I don't ever write a check just for the sake of writing a check. I'm fortunate enough that I have means. I don't need to make more money. I need to make dreams happen. I need Ugh. to make women's, yes. uh, you know, uh, I need to make these things possible. Um, yeah. That's what I do. And so I would say the number one thing is, am I proud of this? Would I be proud to tell my mother if she was alive, my grandmother, my children, that I 
initiated this, that I was behind this? And if the answer is no, and it's purely for fiscal reasons, then I pass. Yeah. Have you always been that way? No. When I didn't have the means, I (laughs) needed to build my comforts. And so then, yes, I looked at things far differently. But once you've got the means, I guess, like, was there a clear shift that you felt internally where you were like, oh, I guess now I'm in this position where the barometer is different for me and it's more intuitive, you know, it's just a difference in approach. I'm very intuitive, actually. And it's funny because I've been in a lot of meetings with a lot of men. Mm. And the minute I say my gut says, they start snickering. (laughs) But then I turn to them, I'm like, you don't understand. A woman's intuition is extremely powerful. Yeah. I would take my intuition and my gut over your charts any day of the week. And men don't listen to their gut or intuition, as I think, as much as women do. And whenever I have fought, fought it and I've let logic take over for what I'm feeling, I've made a mistake. Wow. So if I listen to my gut, if I listen to that, something in the back of my head is telling me, I have to tell you, uh, it pays off. It pays off. Yeah. That's incredible. So of all the projects then that you have been a part of, which one would you say are you the most proud of? Oh, I think right now, Cooler Heads. Uh, It's a woman who was a founder. She went to Stanford. She had a couple of exits. And then she found herself sick uh, with breast cancer. Mm. She um, wanted to save her gorgeous, long red hair. Not just because she wanted to save her hair, but because it gives you an element of control when you have no control. Yeah. She saw that there's something uh, available at the infusion centers that costs $8,000. And it's a cold therapy that you use. And two companies make them, Paquin and Dignitana. These two companies, they're very big. They're cumbersome. And actually, the infusion centers don't want you to use them. Why? You have to put it on. It's a helmet that you would wear to freeze your head so that the poison essentially doesn't go to your brain. And therefore, you save your hair. You have to be on it for at least a half an hour before the chemotherapy starts and another half an hour. That's an hour that they can't charge. There's no code for that. So Mm. you're taking up an hour in the chair when they could have somebody else that they can make money from. So they don't even push it. So suffice to say, she didn't have the $8,000. She jiggy rigged something to be able to simulate it and it worked. And then she said to herself, and actually, forgive me, but she had an exit after this, Mm. but she made her money. She said, I'm going to make it possible to have a portable version that is inexpensive and that will be covered by insurance and that's portable. And the company is called Cooler Heads and it is a small portable version that you can actually plug into your car charger. You can put it on before you leave home if you're driving to the infusion center. You don't have to stay longer. Wow. And it's custom fit for you. So it has a much better fit and it costs $800, which is the minimum amount for a wig that insurance will cover. So it's covered by insurance. Wow. If that doesn't get made. I am going to, I will die trying. I, I, I wrote the first check. I met her at one of, at a woman's summit in San Diego that I was speaking at. She came and chatted with me about it afterwards. I said, I'm going to be your first check. And um, I'm hailing her. I just, I just think she's protected. She's going to get it done. She's That's in trials sick. now with city of yeah. hope and uh, MD Anderson and Dana Farber. So I'm, that's incredible, Stacey. I, my mom has been battling lung cancer for 10 years, so she's had her bouts of, she's done all kinds of variation and chemo and all sorts of different things. And so she's had 
10 years, a decade of the ups and downs that come with hair loss, which, you know, it, it does seem so trivial in a lot of senses, but we, we forget how much of our identity is tied as women, especially is tied in our hair. And it is a very emotional thing. And you said it's and like your lashes and your brows, your lashes and your brow. I mean, it defines, it's, it, it's who you are because it changes the way your, your face is perceived, right? Which is like how you appear to the world, how you have chosen to present yourself that you can control this. And when that control is gone, it's, it's very, um, very challenging. So I think that's a, an incredible. So writing a check to Memorial Sloan Kettery is important, but to yeah. me, I decided to write it to her so that she could hire the engineers that she needed to get. get yeah. Well, that is incredible. I get, yeah. How was your mother? She's good. She's it, this miraculous thing where she was actually not to sidebar from, from our conversation, but she was diagnosed stage four in 2010 and she has been just, you know, just it metastasized, but it's the tumor has never gotten too big. So they've been able to just maintain it. She's small. still here. She's still here. So she's kind of like chronically, she has chronic cancer we call because she has chemo every three weeks, but she's able to do the minimum dose to keep her going. But of course it's affected her. Maybe we'll get her into, get her one of these, uh, yeah. the next, yeah. next round. Yeah. I mean, the oh. amount of money she's, we spent on wigs for her and it never looks right, you know, and it's yeah. so uncomfortable. It really is. We take for granted the hair and like all the stuff that just grows out of our hair, of our heads, but it's, um, it's so You can see why I couldn't say no. Oh my God. It's especially, yeah. and the thing that's so funny is like you said, I don't know if a man would have had that emotional response to that and understand the value of that on such a deeper level because they don't have that same connection to hair. Well, all her bird members are women. And so far all of her yeah. investors are women. So yeah, oh, that's incredible. I, I, I'm glad you're doing that. Thank you. And I can't wait to see it explode into the marketplace. It's wonderful. Um, but to switch gears a little bit. So I want to focus in a little bit on jagged little pill. Um, for the purposes of this. And I know that, you know, when I asked you about it, you had this sort of funny response because you were like, well, I'm a producer, but I'm not really a producer, which I thought was such an honest response because you are an investor in the show. But I'm an investor. Let's be honest. I'm not making creative decisions, but I did find out I'm the only one that says that out loud. Apparently, You are, <laughs> but I think that is important to the context of this conversation because there's so many questions that creative people have about how investors choose their projects, why you would do this versus this other thing, how it all comes together behind the scenes. And I've been fortunate enough to have um, a Broadway theater producer on the show. So we got a little bit of the other side of what it's like to, you know, sort of shepherd a show into existence from a creative development perspective. But I, the financing is just as important, right? Because without people like you, we can't really do our art in the way, in the scale of, of Broadway or whatever, like there's many versions of it, but that gives the access to do it on such a bigger scale that is so exciting. So tell me more. Well, again, about- I've, I've said no to a number of plays. Like right. I didn't feel I was going to change the world backing Tootsie. <laughs> you know, there's so many yeah. of those that, you know, damn Yankees just did not have to be done for a fourth time. We don't need it oh, again. When yeah. I saw the workshop for this, <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, this is rent 2.0. I mean, this is a modern day. I don't know if your listeners will remember Rent, but it was groundbreaking. The they should. That- and if they don't know it, you should stop listening so, to this episode yeah. immediately and go listen to all of Rent and then come back. And this is very relevant. So uh, yeah. at, at, at the uh, premiere, I sat next to Ben Platt, who some people know him from the TV show, The Politician, but I know him from Dear Evan Hansen and yeah. other things. He sat to me and he says, next to me and he whispered, he says, I think you've got another Dear Evan Hansen on your hands, meaning a hit that's relevant. 
And then I said, well, I think if Dear Evan Hansen and Rent had a baby, this would be it. it. Here we are. <laughs> um, so what I saw was, is that it was um, destigmatizing and giving a voice to so many people and so many problems that people that hadn't been addressed on Broadway before. Mm. So from a fiscal standpoint, I said to myself, wow, we are going to be bringing in a whole new audience. We are making the pie a lot bigger. We're not taking from other shows. We are bringing in new audience members. Uh, But I also said to myself, date rape, opioid addiction, um, this striving to be perfect, Mm. Um, (laughs) you know, adoption. I mean, just there's so many uh, class system, uh, racism. There is really, I don't know anybody that watches Jaggy Little Pill and doesn't relate to at least one of the predicaments that's in it. And so that's what made me, and it had all women behind it. Yeah. Eva Price, who's an incredible uh, producer. Diana Paulson, uh, Paulus, who uh, is our director. Alanis Morissette, it's her music. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, we have one man and he's the choreographer. <laughs> so it was all, it was all women at the time. And, um, there's a gal named Abigail Disney who I admire and she has a company called level forward and I've watched them. And mm-hmm. so I, uh, I put my money in just ahead of them, but I was very proud because when I saw that she came, they came in, I said, all right, cause they have a similar investing thesis. Yeah. And so I realized that, uh, mm-hmm. I think I made a good bet. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have been so aligned with so many things, like you said, that represent who you are and what you're, the good that you're trying to do in the world and the means that you have to give it. Um, when I go to the show, I like to sit in the back of the mezzanine because I love, I don't even watch the show anymore. I love to the watch audience. the audience. Yeah. Yeah. I love to see people crying. I love to see them grabbing their seat handles. I mean, and, and just, you know, having an out-of-body yeah. experience and, um, and mid-play standing ovations that happen every single week. When is the last time you've gone to a play where that happens? But that's because people are saying, oh my God, you are relating to me. This happened to me. I was yeah. kicked out of my house for saying I was gay at 16 or whatever it was. So that is a perfect example of where I say to myself, if I was, I was so blessed to have these financial resources. I can't imagine buying anything that could give me this kind of satisfaction. Yeah. You buy something, good. you have some fun with it. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's I mean, the true, true wealth is, is experience, right? Is it the experiences that you can give to yourself yes. and to others? That is the true wealth that any of us can, can hope to have. And the fact that you get to do that on a scale that can impact the lives of so many people is so incredible. And I find, you know, theater and art, the beauty of it to me and why it, it, as much as it can be so challenging is that you truly never know. And you, it's not your, it's not your job to know the impact that that's going to have in the long run on someone's life, how it's going to change their perspective about something, just 1%, you know, just a tiny bit. I'm in a Facebook group though, a jagged little Facebook group that has about 3000 members. Yeah. And it's always growing as people see the show. Of course, not now, but it was. And I love looking at the comments that people post and they are very personal and very raw and uh, very honest. Well, that's, uh, that's why we do it, right? It's, that's the hope is that it can unite us and and be a place where people can comfortably experience something uncomfortable and it gives them a platform and an avenue to process whatever they need to process for themselves. I think it's a wonderful thing. I mean, and so how are you guys doing with 
you know, obviously they're calling this the lost season of Broadway and every other art form that sports, everything that any, anything, the world, all of it. That seventh is the Tonys. And and so the 19, the, the, the 2019 20 season is over because they're not going to have any shows um, till after June 7th, but that's okay. We've got to, you know, we'll, we'll find a way back. Yeah. We're having meetings. We're having web calls like this. And uh, the cast is actively doing a lot of different uh, things on Zoom, yeah. on webinars, yeah, 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 on shows, direct with their fans to help keep them engaged and help them keep their spirit. And so then hopefully we'll find out soon enough about your Tony nomination as well for Best New, Best New Musical, hopefully. Not going to lie. That'd be really cool, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, we'll see. Thank Put, you. Putting it out there. Why not? Why not? You guys Thank have all you. the makings for it, but... So what would you say, you know, as a investor who now has had a taste of producing Broadway, however involved you've been, walk me through a little bit of what that process was like for you coming into this format, I guess. You've invested in so many different kinds of things. How was theater specifically different or how did it supersede expectations? How were you surprised by it? So there's a reason it's called the Broadway community and the movie industry. Huh. It really is a community. Mm. Um, it's very special. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't want to make anyone feel bad about investing in the movie industry because that's, you know, it's, it, that's necessary. I can't, I can't get my hands around that. I don't feel that my checks would make a difference and, and I'm just not, I don't know that. Uh, but I'm learning the Broadway community by starting off with this project. And um, it's like anything in life. So I'm 55. There, I said it. Um, but Amazing. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> but what I always love to say is, how many times do you get a first? Mm. And the older you are, the less chance you have of having firsts. Really, think about it in your everyday life as you get older. And so this was another first, which I love. And so I wasn't going to waste that opportunity. Um, so I, I listened, to, I, I, I'll fly to New York for a meeting. I'll fly to New York for a, choreo, a decision on choreography. I make sure that I'm on every call. I'm using it as an opportunity to learn. And uh, while the investment was significant, um, it, I feel like I'm also getting back a lot by getting an education. Yeah. And so now I'm prepared for future opportunities. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's like, it's going back to school. So what are some of the biggest takeaways that you learned? From this particular, from Mm -hmm. being in the Broadway? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, That it's a lot less expensive than the movie industry. (laughs) Um, I I used to just go to theater and I didn't understand the whole ticketing process and percentage of seats and seats sold. And there's a... There's, there's certain formulas, and if the um, theater isn't at least 80% full, then you're not going to recoup your money. Um, you know, I learned a lot of behind-the-scenes, kind of under-the-covers, things like that. But most important, that the actors do it for the love of the craft. I don't want to sound cliche, like out of a chorus line, but like <laughs> what I did for love. But they do it for love. They yeah. really do. Nobody's getting rich um, on Broadway. They are doing it for their craft and for having that communal experience. And that's why that is one of the things that will be the hardest to replicate in a time of crisis like this with COVID. Because unlike movies and television that you can do with just a crew and then have it aired later, you really 
you can't do that. That's not the essence of Broadway. Yeah. That's something that we've been dis- discussing. Yeah. You can't recreate that live experience too. Right. Like even if you could bring in cameras and record three different angles of a show, it's not, it's maybe we'll sell every other seat or every three seats or yeah. something. We're, we're having discussions about that. Hey, I go to Costco and people are like in front of me, behind me, you know, so, and, and it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. Um, so as we open, I'm hoping that it'll be more regulated and I'm feeling very hopeful now. I'm feeling that we're going to be opening soon. Um, I'm in California and I, I see a light at the end of the tunnel now. I really do. Good. Good. What is one misconception that people have about what you do as an investor, as an entrepreneur who's investing in other entrepreneurs that you're like, oh, I wish people just knew this. So I never like to waste anybody's time. I think people's time is incredibly valuable. And if you waste it, you're stealing from them. So when people come to pitch to me, um, I always try to make sure that they leave with something. And it might not be a check, but I don't want to let them go home empty-handed. And I think people don't realize how heart-wrenching it is because you can't say yes to every to everyone, to every project. Um, you just can't, it doesn't, it, it wouldn't make sense. And, you know, I still have to be, have my fiscal responsibility as well. So I'd say the misconception is that people think it's easy to say no. It's really, really gut-wrenchingly hard for me a lot of times to have to say no. And when it's no to a check, that's when I then open up my Rolodex, Google Rolodex, for those of you that don't know <laughs> where Rolodex is. <laughs> Um, and I go through and I say, who can I hook them up with? How can I help them in another way? Mm. So, and I, and I, I do that on a regular basis. Have you ever had a, a, an experience that was particularly harder than others that really stuck with you and you had to, I don't know, go home and sort of decompress from it and sort of cleanse yourself from it because it was so challenging. It did. Well, I was in an abusive relationship many years ago. Um, Mm. And I had all the means in the world to leave, and I didn't. And so I'm particularly amazed by women that will leave in the middle of the night with their baby on their back and a satchel, you know, and, and, and enough for bus fare. I mean, I, I just, it amazes me how women can, can get out of abusive relationships. And when they do, they're my heroes. So I think that's extraordinary. And there was a company that came to me and, um, it had to do with domestic violence and it had to do, and I wanted to write a check so badly because of the nature of, of that part of it. Uh, but I just couldn't because of other factors that uh, they, it was too early. It was just an idea. They, you know, there, there was lots of reasons why I just Mm -hmm. couldn't do it. That was one that kept me up for a couple of nights. And what is, so what do you do when you have those experiences? How, how do you cope? What is your process to get through that? Um, besides Xanax? Just one milligram. Half a milligram. It's so hard. You know, I'm, I have a wonderful significant other and, you know, I'll keep him up all night. He's a surgeon, so he has a service heart. You know, he's a doctor. <laughs> yeah. So he gets it. When I'll have him up all night, say, but, 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 and he says, you, you, you can't say no to everything. You can't, you, you know, you, you, you're helping them in other ways. Go yeah. to sleep. You know, you'll get through it. 
So yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's an important note. I think a lot of, like, you think you're right, like a lot of people would, would have this impression that it is all numbers and, and it's just very easy to, to like navigate that. But I think so much of what you're describing to me sounds like there's, trusting your gut is an inherently emotional process and you have to have an intelligence about your emotional life that is a strength in my opinion. You know, a lot of people can say that women who are in touch with that part of themselves that vulnerability is, is a deficit, but I actually think it's the opposite. And when you're so in touch with that, it's like it, it costs so much. You know what I mean? It can cost so much. And so when you live that constantly, I always wonder, what is it then that you do to build, your, to refill your well and build yourself back up a little bit because you can't save the world. You can't hug the world, as we say in, in Portuguese. You know, you kind of have to just do what's within the means of what you can do? Well, whenever my kids, I have four kids, and if they come to me and they're depressed, um, and, I, and I'm saying it like that because it's not clinically depressed, they're bored or whatever it is. I just, oh, I'm just whatever. And I say, go do something good for someone. You can't, you can't be depressed while you're being grateful, while you're being proud and grateful at the same time. Yeah. So just go do something good for somebody else. Um, I'm a firm believer in that. And um, and I, I, I used to take them to, you know, children's hospital with me and to um, shelters with me just so they, you know, could to sit, to see that we're very, very lucky. So yeah. I think that doing something good for someone, and I see so much of that happening right now during the virus. There is nothing better that, in, that social media could be used for than seeing seven o'clock every night at shift change people, no matter where they are going out in their balconies and cheering for our first responders and seeing the great humanity that's, that's going on with people. I just, that's maybe the best part about all this right now. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, it's nice to see people showing up for each other in all the ways that they can and supporting one another. It's like, if only we, we didn't have to be in a national crisis to act this way. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, is it Kumbaya? Am I searching for you? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Great. You know, but, but, you know, so the challenges, like so much of this show is, is so, for me, like I'm sort of a junkie for understanding how people navigate dark times in their lives where like, as you were saying at the beginning, like the, the path is never a straight line. There's so many sort of dark corners that you're turning and you get lost down an alley and all of these things, you know? So how have you navigated all of that? And, and it, was there a time where it wasn't clear, like you didn't know how to get to that next level of what you were doing, whatever that was. And what was it that kept you going? How did you get through that? Uh, we, we always go through that, you know, yeah. and it, it's, you know, how do you get yourself back up the next morning, up and out of bed and forward and get your shit together and say, I'm going to continue on. Um, a lot of the, you know, you hear about spin control and how things are projected, but you have to do your own spin control within yourself sometimes. Um, and so I sometimes take things and I'm, I, I like to look at things. I would say I turn the rock 360. And I really look at things from all different angles and almost till I exhaust myself. But I always find that that really helps me because I always try to figure out a way, why, why did this happen? Right now this sucks, but there's a reason it happened. And I'd love to find out now. I may not find out for five years from now, or maybe I'll find out tomorrow. But I have to start thinking about why this happened. 
I call me a fatalist or whatever, but I, I, a lot of times I feel that things happen for a reason Mm -hmm. and that you have to pay attention to them and then make an opportunity out of something that you thought was, you know, awful, but also being willing to take risks. And I know it gets harder as you get older. And I know it's harder if you don't have financial stability to take risks, but I have to say that, that often playing it safe wasn't the right, wasn't the best thing for me. And, Mm. um, What's the worst thing that can happen? And like, I always say, um, it doesn't hurt to ask. So a lot of times when I'm afraid to ask for something, um, I just say, it doesn't hurt to ask. Or you don't have to, you know, be disagreeable to disagree. So I'm going to go back and speak to that person (laughs) and try to do it another way, you know, but I feel like I'm very self-reflective like that. I know my weaknesses. I know them very well. And so I take situations and I think, what was my part in this? Because the ego can really screw you up. Mm, and yeah, if that. you just come from something from ego, and, and everything starts with ego, right? So if, if it's a negative thing, like your ego is hurt. Like, oh my God, I was let go, or I wasn't hired, I wasn't chosen, or whatever it is. And so then I always stop and say, oh, get your ego out of this and let's look at this from another standpoint. And it's so much clearer. It reminds me of uh, like a divorce lawyer. like. When I went through my divorce, I was like, you know, and he was always so composed. And so was it the other lawyer? And that reminded me, that's right. They care, but not that much. So you have to find a way to get out of yourself and not be in that tornado, step aside and not care that much, I think, to get clarity on the situation. Yeah. First, I have my tizzy. I have my ego meltdown. (laughs) <laughs> and then I, then I step away and I go, okay, look at this from somebody else who's not in the middle of it, who didn't happen. Just look at it objectively. And that's how you'll find your way out. And that's really what I do. That's incredible. I, uh, I, I mean, I'm in facing some situations in my own life where it's like serendipitous that you're saying all of this to me right now. Oftentimes when I record with people, I, I feel like I'm just getting free therapy and they somehow know <laughs> They somehow know like the messages that I personally need to hear. And wow. wow. I didn't know. Crazy that I need to be hearing this. And I hope that people listening are also somehow connected to it in that way. Cause it feels oftentimes so eerie almost and serendipitous for me. And so it's, it's almost like, are you wow. right? And happening? the other thing about anger, by the way, cause I mean, you know, I, I majored in anger, you know, I, I, I was D one anger. Like I'm re- I was really good at holding grudging, holding grudging mm. grudges. And I learned that absolutely does not serve you well. And somebody said to me, anger is like drinking poison and thinking that the other person's going to drop dead. <laughs> what are you doing? You're poisoning yourself. Yes. Knock it off. Mm. And so I try really hard now when I get very angry. And like I say, have my little tizzy, hissy fit, my yeah. you know, whatever. I and my anger, and I'm never going to forgive them. And then I realize, like, they're living their life. They're not thinking about me. No. Yeah. They're having a good time while I'm here, like doubled over and, you know, in a fetal position. So like knock it off. Yeah. It's like they say that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like you get to choose how you want to react. It's not to say you shouldn't suffer. You shouldn't feel the full extent and expression of your humanity, but it's almost like I find sometimes we can get obsessed with like, uh, a a pixel of something right and if we can just zoom out you get to see the whole picture and you see that 
that pixel isn't really all that important when you look at the whole picture and that I need that like lesson constantly in my life because so much of my job is to look at the things that don't work and could go wrong at any moment and that it can very easily bleed into all other areas of my life. And it can make me be a glass half empty or half full negative sort of perspective, empty, you know, yeah, or you like I barely yeah. have a glass, like the glass is broken and right. old and, you know, duct tape, <laughs> you know, so it's, I think it's a really good reminder, especially, um, especially in these times. And you know, another misconception, people think that when you have money, that you're automatically happy as heck. That you're automatically have it all and that you don't have so any problems. You're saying money does not buy happiness. <laughs> I've sat in a 22,000 square foot house, curled up like this on a gorgeous marble floor, crying, wishing I could be anywhere but there. So trust me when I tell you, you make yourself happy. The money just gives you choices, it gives you the freedom to say and instead of or. Mm. It makes it so you can pay your bills. That's what it does. And when I sometimes will see on social media, it makes me a little bit crazy. And I see people with their five cars and their this and the bling and their stuff and their blah, 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 blah. And I just think to myself, oh, I feel so bad for them because they must be so empty because these things are so fleeting and they don't really, you're never going to get filled. You have a hole that's never going to get full no matter how much crap you buy or how much yeah. stuff you, you buy. And so that was a, 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 a big lesson is that... Um, Again, money gives you freedom, but certainly doesn't give you, and gives you options, but certainly doesn't give you yeah. happiness. And happiness is a choice that you make every day. Yeah. I mean, we see a lot of people who come into large sums of money and don't know what to do with it because they don't have the knowledge to understand that it's, it's, a, it's a freedom that gives you the choices. And they go to the other extreme thinking that they're going to buy all this stuff and it's going to fill all these holes that they haven't had a chance to truly look into because we, we, I think as a society are fed this idea that that is the American dream, right? Like you want all of those things that are propagated in the media and it's, there's industries built on telling you that whatever you have, if it's not, if it's just your own well being, well, that's not enough. You should want these things. These things will bring you happiness. These things will make you desirable. These things will make you beautiful, you know, and the massive industries catered specifically to making women feel bad. So then they go out and buy things they don't need, you You're know. Right. Um, Look at the Instagram things that are coming through now. Everything is about like, do your own manicure, lashes, blah, blah. Everything is about that. I haven't gotten any, you know, self-care that was something internal. So yeah. yes, you're right. I, yeah. I completely agree with you. Yeah. It's like, you've got to go from the inside out. You can't, you know, and I, and I think me coming from a very different world than you have come from, like as a total immigrant who came from very meager means and my parents like sacrificed everything, left everything behind in Brazil so we could come here and pursue our dreams. It's like, we, we have seen that our value system is just different, you know, and it's like, of course, we want to have the comforts and the, the freedom, like you said, that money brings, but not at the expense of other things. And I think sometimes it's treated as if you can only have one without the other. And I just don't believe in that at all. And I think you seem to be living proof of that, you know, that you can have both of those things, that these things can coexist. Um, and in gosh, if you get to be fortunate enough to have all those things, have enough more than you need for yourself, and then also get to empower other people to go pursue the things that they have dreamed about and ways they're going to like make changes in the world like that. 
that's being real. That's true. Right? That's true wealth. That's true. That's the wealth. And that's yeah. like, that's I, a, a wonderful goal. To- and I try to tell people that there are different currencies and you should not only be measuring it by, you know, the dollar. You've got your spiritual currency, right? You've got, you know, there's, there's things that fill you. There's things that have great value that aren't just money in the bank. And really you should be looking for those things and having as much of that as possible. Um, you know, I, just yesterday, somebody said to me, live your life like you're writing your eulogy, not your resume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's a, that's a, somebody said that to me once a while ago too, like two years ago, maybe. And I, I like to repeat it often because we can get caught up in. Well, in that person way. who told it to me was you. So I would <laughs> I like to try to say cool, but okay. Fine, <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I think it's true. I think we can get caught up in, and particularly in, you know, in the film industry specifically where I operate and sort of live and breathe in this independent space where so much is like who you know and where you're going and the jobs you're doing and the, the, the sort of external validation of the projects by the industry that created it. And it's all of that. I think is, it's important to have goals and metrics to, to work towards. But if you're going to have a terrible journey and if you're going to become a terrible, cynical, miserable human on the path there, then what is the point? You know, I, I really preach this and I believe it and I say it everywhere. And if you're listening to the show, you're probably like, yes, Carolina, we've heard you say this a million times and I'll say it for the rest of my life because I did not believe that for a while, a long time, you know, and I had to have a shift into who do I want to be when this is all said and done? And it's a constant reminder. And there are many challenges along the way that go, are you sure? Are you sure you want a life? That's you have listeners, life? by the way, who are moms. I always feel like it's our responsibility as mothers to change the shift in our children. And so I, w- I would really catch myself saying to my daughter, look how pretty you are. Mm. Pretty, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty. No, I'd say, oh, look how clever you are. Wow, you are savvy. Wow, you're creative. Wow, you're, you know, uh, accomplished. Yeah. So we can start changing the, the narrative with our children or young people that we come into contact with with our words and our, our, and I think, yeah, yeah, like what is it that, who do you want to be and how do you want to show up for other people? And I think that you have to go on a journey that sometimes isn't comfortable to find out what that is and truly prioritize who you're going to be, not what you're going to be. Because I think, especially in my industry where so much, there's such a hierarchy with like titles and pay, you know, how much you get paid versus your title. And, there's so many different yeah. levels of positions. Sometimes people can get caught up in like, well, I'm this, I'm the producer and you're the PA. And it's like, that doesn't matter. Those are just titles that's ego. temporary and fleeting. Yes, ego. And that all changes. It's all going to change. It's like, how about kindness? How about compassion? How about- I've, nev- I've never leader? asked somebody to do something that I either haven't done or that I don't currently do. So yeah. I, when I was listening to your show, like with Mary Howard, you know, but people say, get, get coffee for <laughs> you. I, I think what world are we living in now? You know, the first thing you should say is what can I get you? What can I bring you? What a pleasure it would be. I think yeah. if we all stepped out of ourselves and didn't think things were above or beneath us, whatever, we just have to have more of a service heart in everything, in our business and our personal lives. It's yeah. uh, the ego is really quite dangerous. It is dangerous. And I think who you are in your professional life should never be 
different than who you are in your personal life. I think in the film industry, especially your currency is your integrity. It, that's, it's all you have. Like I don't go out for jobs and people look at my resume or look at movies I've produced and, and the budget I made and how they fared compared to what I thought it was going to cost. That's literally never happened. It's all trust. It's all word of mouth. It's all relationships. You know, it's all instinctual. It's all your gut. So it, I think it's hard to believe that when you're starting out because it feels so far-fetched. It feels so pie in the sky. And I, I remember when I was starting out, I used to get angry at people like myself who would say this kind of stuff. Cause I'm like, what do you mean? There's gotta be like a practical guide to getting there. Like it, it can't just be that. And, and I exhausted myself thinking that that was the thing I'm going to do the res I'm going to do the things that I'm supposed to do, but life had other plans for me and certain, um, situations that were thrust upon my life forced me to make a very sharp turn in my own journey and kind of really have to um, reflect on this very theme of like, well, who do I want to be and how do I want to show up? And if this is the way the industry wants me to be, then I'm not going to be this person. I'm going to find a different industry or I'm going to find my own way to get there. Right. And it's going to take a little longer and it's probably going to be more painful but the journey is going to be so much sweeter when I get to the other side. And when I'm 80 lying on my deathbed, or not deathbed, because that sounds dramatic, but you know, when I'm reflecting back on my life, like that's the stuff that you're going to remember, you know, and, and who you were able to be and how, how you were able to show up for other people, even in the face of challenge, especially in the face of challenge, wow. like we're facing right now. You know, these are the moments that show well, us. Who I'm very are. impressed and proud with everything you're saying because you're in an industry that is really the opposite of that. I have one quick anecdote that I'll tell you about at my yeah. daughter's school for anybody that has a child out there. Um, and, you know, with all that I've done, my degrees and all that, I'm really, I spent like a good four or five years working at the they called it the chuck wagon at my daughter's yeah. school. And it's where you serve school. So I was pizza Wednesday. I was taco Thursday. I serves, you know, serve lunch to the kids, which I, I loved. And that was my way of being able to volunteer and be in the classroom. One day, um, one year I come, my daughter was uh, six years old. So she was in first grade and they did self portraits. And it was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it was back to school night. And I came and I looked around and I just, I couldn't see my daughter because she has long, beautiful brown hair and there was nothing that even resembled her. And then the teacher brought me over and there was her drawing and her hair was in a white hairnet. So that's why I didn't recognize her. And it said, when I grow up, I want to be a lunch lady like my mother. <laughs> and my ego went, oh, my daughter thinks I'm a lunch lady. And then my heart said, my, my daughter wants to grow up to be me. Yeah. And if that's how she sees me, because I'm in her school, then I made a good choice. Yeah. So, you know, what, what matters more? And I think that if it was, certainly it wouldn't have been, I want to be a capitalist like my mother. I want to, you know, I want to be a hedge fund manager like my mother. Yeah. No. She thought I was a lunch lady. Why? Because I was. I had made that choice and, and it was a it, good one. When you're a kid, go, having lunch is the happiest part of your day. So getting to see Absolutely. your mom bringing you lunch, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> you know, Serving to, lunch to all the kids on the campus yeah. and giving your friends extra dessert and yeah. extra Oreos. And stuff. Oh yeah, that was, so there was a currency that was really big to my six-year-old, to all four of my kids and it had nothing to do with dollars, right? That's so... Beautiful. You have to think about the different bank accounts that you have in your life and the different currencies 
that uh, and the deposits that are made in those. Mm. And really just uh, think about those because you're a lot rarer than you think you are. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, we are getting close to the hour and I do want to be respectful of your time. My last question for you would be, you know, what advice do you have for someone who looks at what you've done and how you've been able to, obviously there's been certain circumstances in your life that have yielded uh, and made you be able to be in a certain position to be able to grow and build and all of that. But what advice would you give to someone who wants to learn more about investing and being an entrepreneur and empowering others, um, even if they don't have tons of money to play with, but they want to take what maybe little they do have to invest in people in their communities, especially right now, and give them sort of a jump start into the thing they're trying to do. Well, I'm definitely going back to my, my, my loans, uh, where I started all these years ago now, thanks to Poverty, because there's a lot of women now that will need to start businesses again. And we'll, we'll need to, you know, giving interest-free loans, helping women get on their feet again. So I'm very excited to get that going again. I think the thing that's most important is um, baby steps, start small, um, go online and look up anything you can about the subject. And then there's so many different uh, investing groups and summits and classes and I mean, I could do I could do ten a week if I had time. You just have to kind of look them up. There's Tech Coast Angels. There's Golden Seeds. There's OSHA Angels. There's I mean, there's just Plum Alley. There's so many different groups. Those all just happen. A lot of them happen to be women that invest in women. But there's um, a lot of places that are dying to have new members. And if your check is five hundred dollars or it's five hundred thousand dollars, the only difference is that you know there's more zeros on your check. But they still need you. They need your ideas. They want your input. They want to teach you. And it's a great place to, to learn and, and start small. Um, I think of it like the new book club. So instead of a book, how about getting your group together and everyone think of uh, a new business that they know somebody's starting. And then together, investigate where you want to put your money. So let's say you pull your money. It's $50 a woman and there's 10 of you, so you have 500 or it's $500 and there's 10 of you and there's 5,000. And you decide together to make an investment in a woman um, and you do the work together. All about it. Love that idea. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible hour spent with an angel. (laughs) Ah, thank you. Um, This is lovely. I loved it. Thank you. Did an hour go by? I did. I can't it's believe crazy, it. Right? Like, and I'm trying That's real crazy. hard to not be so verbose because I, I tend to talk a lot. <laughs> but um, oh no, I love everything you have to say. I Thank love it. You. I can't believe an hour went by. It was I know such a treat. <laughs> Thank you. And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in week after week and doing this life thing with me. Please spread the word. Tell a friend. Tag a friend. Follow me on social media. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. Would love to hear what you think. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.